We think about questions as a way to discover more, but have you also considered how your questions might influence? On this episode, Kwame Christian returns to show us three steps to influence better through intentional questions. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 627. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. We have had a lot of conversations on the show over the years about questions, the importance of being coach-like and using questions in order to discover more, and also how to ask better questions. But we haven't looked as much at how we can influence through our questions. Today, I'm so glad to welcome back a friend, an expert who is going to help us to do just that. I'm so pleased to welcome back to the show Kwame Christian. He's a best-selling author, business lawyer, and CEO of the American Negotiation Institute. Following the viral success of his TED Talk, Kwame released his best-selling Finding Confidence in Conflict, How to Negotiate Anything and Live Your Best Life way back in 2018. He's also a regular contributor for Forbes and host of the number one negotiation podcast in the world, Negotiate Anything, which currently has over 5 million downloads worldwide. Under his leadership, the American Negotiation Institute has coached and trained several Fortune 500 companies on applying the fundamentals of negotiation to corporate success. He's also the author of the book, How to Have Difficult Conversations About Race, which we featured on the show last year. My friend, always a pleasure to talk to you. Welcome back. Yes, Dave. Good to see you again, and thanks for having me. As always, so much fun to talk with you. And every time we do have a conversation, not only does it help me in my work, but it also helps me as a parent, because inevitably there's something you say that 48 hours from now our kids are going to hear... (laughs) me repeat back to them. (laughs) Thanks for all your wisdom. I really appreciate it. Uh, You, of course, started your career as a lawyer, and you've gone through more training than the average person on how to ask questions, especially in tough situations where you're trying to influence. I'm curious, what's different about, just big picture, the questions you ask today from when you started practicing law? Yeah, I think my approach now is a lot more nuanced. I didn't realize the versatility of questions and curiosity until I started interviewing people like hostage negotiators, police interrogators, teachers, relationship therapists, and all sorts of different people in different industries on Negotiate Anything who taught me just how many different ways we can use questions in difficult conversations. And as a lawyer, it's pretty limited, even as a mediator as well, because I'm usually listening for asking questions and listening for data collection, information, the facts, those type of things. And of course, questions are good for that. But now I'm recognizing that we can use questions to be more influential and we can use questions to deepen relationships. And it's been a really fun journey learning more about curiosity and the power of curiosity in difficult conversations. Yeah, and you said two words there, which I'd love to highlight. You said both curiosity and you said influence. And I think we think about questions a lot through the lens of curiosity, but we don't necessarily think about questions in the realm of influence. In fact, that might even seem odd to think about questions for influence. How do you think about that now, big picture? And as a lawyer, 
I need to give a disclaimer. I'm not answering this question as a lawyer. I'm answering this question as a negotiator. And that's a very uh, important uh, distinction. Okay. Because as, as a lawyer, I might be asking leading questions in a cross-examination, for example, or in a deposition or something like that, where it, there is not a collaborative purpose <laughs> behind a lot of the ways those questions are asked. But when it comes to thinking about questions through the lens of curiosity versus influence, I don't necessarily think of it as two different things. One of the things that's interesting is that as you ask better questions, you will stumble into more situations of accidental influence, where the quality of the question improves the quality of the answer, and you're not just helping yourself get a better understanding, you're also helping the other side get a better understanding of themselves, their wants, and their needs. And sometimes persuasion just happens organically through that process. And I think that's when persuasion is at its best. And ideally, it's a win for both parties, right? And I think that's the intention behind this is, and I'm glad you made this distinction. If you're a lawyer arguing a case, you're obviously in an adversarial context. It's a win-lose, right? When you're having a conversation and asking good questions to influence, ideally, you are trying to influence an outcome that is good for both parties, employer, employee, customer, vendor. You know, If you're not finding those outcomes that are going to be good for both through your influence, you're not going to build relationships that matter. And that's, I know, so important for our audience. Exactly. And we have to create a firm foundation within the relationship as a whole, but also within the conversation itself. So yeah, the mentality is going to be important because in order to be truly curious, you have to be humble. And so I'm talking about genuine curiosity versus strategic curiosity. So if I'm asking leading questions where I'm, my intent is more selfishly driven, people can sense that. And they're not going to feel safe enough to truly be vulnerable and open while answering those questions. So before we even talk about the actual questions that we're asking, how we're asking it, what we're saying, what we're avoiding saying, we have to start with the mindset. We have to be humble in our approach, and we also have to be collaborative. And just changing your mindset will improve the quality of your questions in your next conversation. When I was a Dale Carnegie instructor, inevitably, I would get the question once in a while when talking about the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, from someone who would say, well, couldn't you use this book to manipulate? And my answer was, well, yeah, of course you could. And and I'm sure people have. But that's true for anything. The tools, the frameworks that we're going to be talking about here have to be through the lens of, I'm here to serve. I'm genuinely trying to help the world. I'm coming from a place of, I want to reach out and support good things happening for both parties. And so with that lens, one of the things that I really appreciate about you is you always have a framework for us on how to think about this and make this really step-by-step. And there's three kinds of questions that you've taught me that are helpful in thinking about this through the lens of influence. Rapport, information, and persuasion, those three steps. And it starts with rapport. What's the intention of starting with rapport? Let's think about it through the lens of momentum 
And so we understand momentum is this nebulous energy that exists. We can see it very clearly in sports <laughs> and things like that, but it also exists in relationships and conversations. And so what I want to do is I want to start to create some positive momentum for the interaction. So before starting the conversation at the most difficult parts, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take a step back and demonstrate the genuine nature of this interaction. I care about you. I'm interested in you beyond what you can give me or what you do for me or anything like that. I don't see you as just a means to an end. I actually care about you as a person. And that creates trust. So I want to get some positive momentum. I want to improve the relationship. I want to get some of that collaboration going. But more so than anything, I want to demonstrate trust by showing that I care. When you start a conversation with someone and you may not have much rapport with them yet. Are there things you typically do or ask that help you to start establish that kind of rapport? I'm just curious, like what works for you? I start off very open. So tell me about your day. How's your day going? Things like that. A lot of times curiosity is just pointing out what you see and observing it and ask a question about it. I'll give an example from a, an interview I just did. So I was talking to another negotiation expert and I saw he had a really interesting chair, computer chair. And I said, oh, I like that chair. What kind of chair is it? And he said, oh, it's this brand. It's really comfortable. I said, is that a gaming chair? Yeah, it's a gaming chair. So you game? He said, I actually used to be a professional gamer before I went to college. Oh, wow. And so... Yeah. And so before the conversation, we talked for like 10 or 15 minutes <laughs> about video games. Right. And so think about that. We're if in general, that's creating a lot of positive momentum. It's creating a lot of trust. It makes us feel together. Right. Now let's think about it psychologically. What we're doing is we're triggering affinity bias. So we like people who are like us. Now, of course, disclaimer, affinity bias can be a problem when it comes to challenges with inclusion and belonging within organizations. Right. But we have to recognize that bias is a ubiquitous part of the human interaction. It's always going to be there. So it's important for us to understand that psychology and leverage it in our favor when it serves us and it's ethical. So I see that you have a gamer chair. I'm going to point that out. You're going to talk about the video games you like. I'm going to talk about the video games I like. You see me as like you. I see you as like me. That makes us like each other more, and it improves the quality of the interaction. I was in an event years ago, and a very well-known executive coach was doing a panel, and someone asked him, how do you find empathy for your client? He worked with difficult people sometimes. And someone asked, how do you have empathy for people who are jerks? <laughs> and <laughs> everyone sort of laughed. And then he answered and he said, well, I, I find something I could love about them. Like I, I would notice a picture of a grandchild on their desk, or I'd, they'd say something about a parent or a family member that they cared about. And he said, I really zero in on that. And like, I'm hearing you say almost the same thing. Like, If you look for it and if you start a conversation or any interaction with someone with the lens of like, what could I really love, appreciate, admire about this person? And if I'm willing to be curious there, like, what a, what a great starting point of showing up and really genuinely seeing someone else and building rapport. 
Absolutely. And that is especially powerful with people who have been labeled as difficult people. Because if you are labeling that person that way, it's mo- it's likely that other people have as well. And people don't treat them very well <laughs> if they're, un- they're not naturally likable. And so you will stand out in their minds because you've done what most people didn't. And that's see some value in what they bring to the table. Yeah. This brings us maybe to the second piece, which is information, asking some information questions. What's different about information versus rapport? Yes. So when we're gathering information, it's important to recognize that we'll, we'll, prob- we'll definitely gather information during the rapport building stage. But as we start to transition into the more substantive part of the conversation, now we're being a little bit more intentional with the way that we're gathering information. So I want to learn more about the person and their perspective. I want, I want to learn more about what they want. I want to learn more about what they actually need. Those two things are often different. And I want to also learn about their emotional state. And this is where empathy really comes into play. I mean, empathy should be included in every element (laughs) of your difficult conversation or conversations in general. But that's really what I'm looking for. Just a deeper understanding of the situation and the individual so I can start to paint a picture in my mind of a potential outline for a solution for the situation at hand. And I know you invite people at this stage to think really broadly and to start broadly with questions versus asking really, really specific questions. What, well, first of all, the, what's the reason behind that? Why, why actually start with a really broad, open-ended question? Because we don't know <laughs> what's important yet. We think we might know, but great negotiators embrace surprise. People are complex. We, we can never know everything. And so if we go in assuming that we know, then we might run into issues of unintentional disrespect where we are not giving the other person an opportunity to share and be heard. We might run into issues of missing important elements that could be really beneficial during the conversation. So I like to use what's called the funnel technique, where I start very broadly at the beginning of the conversation. And then as I get more information and data, I start to narrow down that funnel and start to ask questions with more specificity. So here's an example. So as a mediator, some people might have been in the litigation process for over a year and they have a massive case file. I review the case file before every mediation. And so I know why, they, why they're there. <laughs> I know what they're trying to accomplish. But every time when I was with meeting with the parties individually, I would say, how did we get here? Or what do you hope to accomplish? Or tell me the story, whatever it happens to be. And so as they're telling their story, I'm paying attention to things like tone, pace, repetition, and body language. So after I've established a baseline, I want to see, is there a deviation in their tone? Is there a deviation in their pace, the rapidity of speech? Is there a deviation in the volume at which they're speaking? Is there a deviation in their body language? And once I recognize those deviations, I might not know what that means, but it's a guide for my curiosity. 
So if I'm recognizing that they've repeated something a number of times, I, I would say, well, Dave, I noticed that you mentioned this a number of times. Can you tell me more about that? So I'm working down the funnel. And I'll give an example. In, in one of my mediations, I was surprised to find out that this feud between neighbors came down to an issue with the dog. One of the neighbors had a dog that was apparently really annoying. The dog was never mentioned in the case file, but the neighbor kept on talking about how annoyed they were about <laughs> this dog and what the dog was doing. Oh, interesting. So I said, tell, tell me more about this dog. And bringing that issue onto the table was able to break an impasse and we were able to create a deal that helped us to move forward. And so you never know what's going to be important. So it's really important for us to start broadly and embrace those surprises. All right, there's so much here in what you just said that I, I actually would love to dig in more on. And I'm realizing first, could we go back for just a second and mm -hmm. talk about rapport and moving to information? Because I think that's awkward for a lot of us. Like, okay, we kind of like know how to build rapport. We ask a couple of curious questions we find maybe that connection with someone. And then sometimes it's an odd transition to like what the more meat of the conversation is. What do you find that works for you in making that transition? Yeah, <laughs> this is um, part art, part science. So sometimes it's a feel thing. Sometimes if you have a lot of rapport with somebody, then you realize, okay, this conversation is not going to be as difficult as I thought. I can I can be a little bit more flexible in my approach. Sometimes it might not even be a situation where there's not a good level of rapport. It might just be a situation of the the practicality of time. Mm, <laughs> it yeah. might be a situation where we have 30 minutes to to address this issue. So I in my mind, if I have 30 minutes, then I'd probably cut the banter to like five minutes, for example, right? And so I would try to say, all right, well, I, it's been... It, I'm really glad that you're here, Dave, and we're here to talk about X, Y, Z. And so I want to get your thoughts about this issue. And so it doesn't need to be like super smooth, but I think there has to be someone at some point who says, okay, <laughs> let's, let's transition. And I think it's, it's really beneficial to do that in a clear type of way. And it's just about finding an appropriate off-ramp. Yeah. And I was, as you were saying that, I was trying to think of like, how do I do it? I think I do something really similar, which is often I'll say, well, thank you so much for your time or something like that. And mm. then here's one or two things I was thinking we do with our time and try to just keep that short and concise, but to make that transition and, and, and doing that intentionally, like especially if that transition hasn't happened. And that I think leads me to one of the other things that I think was really interesting about what you said on the information, like the second piece of like gathering information, is that asking that broad question is that there's an element here of permission, right? Like if if you ask a broad question and then someone goes down whatever path they go down, they've sort of said without saying it, hey, like I want you to have a conversation with me about this thing and maybe they answer maybe they take you down the path you thought you were going to go down but maybe they said something really different like with the dog example and the neighbor like oh interesting that didn't come up but this keeps coming up in the conversation and so then it's following that path which leads me to also something I'm curious about that you do you talk about in conversations of gathering information of really pulling the thread Tell me more about that. Yeah. So one of the things that I've recognized is that 
we often ask only surface level questions. And so, what do you think about that, Dave? Okay. And then we move on <laughs> once we get those initial thoughts. No, what I want to do is I want to take it to the logical conclusion. And again, when it comes to negotiation, and negotiation is an information gathering game. That's it. Negotiation is an information game. And so just for those leaders out there who don't identify as negotiators, my definition of negotiation is anytime you're in a conversation with somebody, you are negotiating. So what I want to do is as I start to focus in on what somebody is saying, I'm going to dig deeper and deeper and deeper until I've reached that logical conclusion. And then towards the end, sometimes I'll just ask the simple question of what else, or is there anything else I should know or something like that. And once I feel as though there's nothing else to explore, then I'll transition. Usually you could ask, three, four, five questions on that narrow issue. And that's when you get to the gold. But especially if it's a tough conversation, people might not feel comfortable giving you everything the first time. And so you have to kind of, while helping them to feel comfortable, push a little bit more and pull that information out of them. Yeah. And there's still an element of permission though, right? Like they don't have to answer the question. They've opened the door to something if you're following that path, like going back to the yes. dog, they open the door to that. So you're like, well, tell me more about the dog and what's going on. Like I could see how just a couple of two or three questions there like starts to open up all of a sudden all this detail that you didn't know before. And you get to a place where you're like, okay, we've said whatever we needed to say about that. Like the the what else? Thinking about Michael Bungay standards and what else questions. Like it's the same thing. It's mm -hmm. just like giving them the you're guiding them, but they're ultimately leading the conversation as in deciding the content of what it is that they're saying and offering. Exactly. And I'll say this too, Dave, when we're talking about permission, especially if you're a leader who has authority over somebody, they might give you information even though they're not giving permission. And what I mean by that is that when it comes to these conversations, they might feel obligated to share even though they don't feel safe. And you, you should pay attention to that hesitation. And it doesn't mean that you shouldn't ask that question. It means that you need to do a little bit of work to help them to feel safer answering that question. And so one of the things we need to make sure that we don't do is turn this into an interrogation where it's question response, question response, question response. That can feel a little bit imbalanced. And so for me, if I recognize that they're pushing their foot on the brake pedal, that means that they're not feeling safe. So I push my foot on the gas by sharing a little bit of information about me. I'll be a little bit vulnerable. I'll share my perspective. And then that often triggers a little bit of reciprocity where they feel safe sharing. But if it's only them providing you with information, eventually they get to a point where they catch onto the pattern and they, they say, wow, am I oversharing? This is, in, this is a little bit uncomfortable. And so you have to be mindful of that balance to make sure that they feel safe sharing more. I am so glad you mentioned that because when the power dynamics are there, even if someone is engaging with something, it doesn't mean that they have permission. And I, I, I love that advice to like, okay, so stop and then reciprocate some. When you see someone putting the brakes on or hesitating and maybe like they may technically say something, but they're not really given permission, 
what are the kinds of things that you tend to notice that are indicators to you that that might be happening? So again, let's think about the baseline. If at the beginning of the conversation, they were sharing answers that were between 30 and 60 seconds long, and then now they're sharing answers that are between five and, and 10 seconds long, okay, that's a deviation from the baseline. They're still talking, but not as much. That's interesting. That's something to explore. And so I'll think about it in terms of the, the reciprocal nature of vulnerability. So I'll try that out. And if that isn't working, then I would assume, I'll take a, like my hypothesis would be that there's some emotional barrier. And so I would use the compassionate curiosity framework. And step one is acknowledge and validate the emotions. And I would just say, hey, Dave, correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it seems like you don't feel comfortable answering this question. Am I reading that right? And then hear how they respond. And they'll explain. They'll say, no, it's not that I don't feel comfortable. Maybe it's it's more that I don't feel confident in my answer and I don't want to lead you astray. Oh, that's 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 important information to know. I appreciate that. So it's not an issue of comfort. Or maybe they might say, well, yeah, Kwame, I do feel uncomfortable answering this question because I feel as though maybe if I share this, I'm putting myself in a bad position or I'll get in trouble, something like that, right? Because if it's an emotional barrier, then that's an inf piece of information that's really important. And you're probably not going to get much information going forward until you address that emotional barrier and help the person to feel safe. And it goes back to the baseline, like you said, and I think particularly thinking about colleagues, employee, employer, boss, noticing different behavior than you normally see from someone in a conversation, especially if you know someone, that's a really important flag to watch for. And then to stop and then to have that that compassion, that curiosity that you talked about. Like what a what an important thing for us all to remember. Absolutely. So this leads us to persuasion and utilizing questions in order to persuade a bit. And I'm I'm curious like what that sounds like that's because part of what I've heard you say on this is that we often assume persuasion, a sentence ends in a period, but it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. A, a persuasive sentence could end with a question mark. How does that sound and what's different than Yeah, I think the the difference is the intent because... If I'm asking questions for the purposes of building rapport and for the purposes of gathering information, I'm doing that so that I can gather more information and I can learn. When I'm asking questions that are more persuasive in nature, I'm doing that to shift your perspective so you begin to think differently. So it's not so much about extracting information as it is an issue of shifting perspective. Because perspective is kind of like a spotlight. Whatever you focus on is the thing that's most important. And so I'll give an example of something I call a, a conclusive question. So what I would do is I would think about the persuasive statement that I want to make. And then I would challenge myself to turn that into an open-ended question. So imagine a situation where you're in a difficult conversation and Every time, you, every time you make a point, they come up with a counterpoint so quickly that it's clear that they did not listen to what you said. They were just waiting for you to stop talking so they could counter what it is that you said, right? And then it turns into a game of verbal tennis and it's not becoming productive. You just keep on going back and forth. 
one of the ways that you can break that pattern is, let's say in this situation, they're making a decision that would solve their problem in the short term, but would cause more problems down the line. So instead of coming in and saying, Dave, if you make this decision, it will cause problems for our team down the line. You could say, hey, Dave, out of curiosity, if we use this solution, what impact could that have on our team in three to six months? Because in order to answer that question, they need to shift their perspective from the short term and engage in long term thinking and then consider the consequences of the decision that they're making today. Mm. So at the end of these conversations, in my opinion, persuasion is at its best when it's imperceptible, when they don't credit me for their change in position. So it's not, I had a conversation with Kwame and he changed my mind. It's, I had a conversation with Kwame and then after it, I saw things differently. And then I decided to make a different decision. And so what we're doing with this methodology is we are making difficult conversations easier by avoiding unnecessary barriers to success. But if I go through this process of building rapport, gathering information, and then creating these perspective shifting questions, now, if I make my point, they might be more receptive. So in a difficult conversation, we can say the right thing at the wrong time, and it doesn't work. And so this just makes the point that you ultimately want to make a lot more persuasive, even though you're saying the exact same thing. One of the other things that you teach people is how to respectfully challenge and to persuade a bit with a question. And you have a friend, Zoe Chance, is that how she says her name? Yes. Who has a question that starts with, what would it take? And I'm wondering, like, if you could share that with us on, like, someone says something that's you do need to challenge in some way and how she approaches that. Yeah, it's brilliant. And it's it's rare that you get some of these, I don't want to call them zingers, because we're not, zinger implies <laughs> that it's like against somebody. But you get these these really useful phrases or questions that are just incredibly pla uh, practical and useful across all sorts of situations. And so a lot of times somebody is resistant because they're not allowing themselves to even consider what it would take to employ the solution that you're suggesting. And so essentially you ask this non-threatening question almost in the form of a hypothetical. So, okay, hypothetically, what would it take for this to happen? And so she calls it the magic question. And so it forces them to, in order to answer that question, they have to think creatively about how it would make what, what it would take to make it happen. And so essentially what they're doing is with their response, they're helping you to understand the, the root of their resistance. So you can then create a more persuasive argument based on their concerns. It's again, it's getting to the place that you want to go anyway, but it's, it's really doing it in a much softer way. And even when something becomes really confrontational, like Someone has a someone says something that's maybe factually untrue. You're not going to say, "Oh, well, that's not true." Or you're lying in a conversation, right? You're going to come at that from a like, "Oh, that's that's interesting." Like, I have a really different perspective on that. Or, or tell me how you tell me how you came to that perspective. You know, it's it's you're 
laying the foundation. I mean, it comes back to laying the foundation, doesn't it? Exactly. And the what you were saying there about how to challenge somebody, especially if we disagree, that approach is called epistemology. So the study of how we know what we know. And so an epistemological approach to persuasion would be asking questions that challenges the person to explain how they know what they know. Essentially using a softer approach to challenging somebody. Essentially what you're saying is, all right, interesting. How did you come to that conclusion? Or tell me more about that. And especially when we know the person is wrong, what we're going to do is we're going to ask those questions. So they're kind of revealing their ignorance to themselves. And they start to realize like, oh, you know what? My, my conclusion isn't as solid. And that's the thing, kind of going back to what you talked about at the beginning, there's, there's no manipulation in this. At the end of the day, a lot of persuasion involves helping somebody to make a better decision, helping them to see things from a different perspective that they may not have considered before. And if they had that perspective, they might have started off in a different place. And you're just helping them to see things differently. And that's really important. And that will have an impact on your tone as well. Because if we go in there with the story of I'm right, you're wrong, people can sense that arrogance in the conversation. And now it's not about right versus wrong or the right decision or the best decision or a workable decision. It's more about them establishing themselves in this conversation and in this relationship as somebody who has a valuable perspective. And if it feels as though we are brushing aside their perspective without giving it reasonable consideration, then they will resist even more. Not because they believe that they're right necessarily, but be, but because they need to kind of reclaim their dignity and respect in the interaction because they don't feel like they're getting it from you. I so appreciate everything you've taught us. I'm, I'm going to be putting this into practice right away uh, in my own conversations. Thank you always for the perspective. You are also up to something new. You just started a, a new offering called Negotiable, and I'm really curious, like, what is that about and how do folks find out about it? Yes, thanks, Dave. So yes, negoti Negotiable is an online community where you learn to negotiate anything. And so we have within that community a course called The Essential Elements of Negotiation. And then we also have people coming in and speaking and presenting new topics every single month. And I think one of the, the best things about it is that you'll be able to create your own learning journey with a podcast. So we have <laughs> over 800 episodes at this point, which can be overwhelming. And so you can take a quiz, share your industry, share your interests, and then it will auto-populate your own private feed where you can learn from the best episodes that we have on those topics. I love that you're creating community around this because tough situations, negotiation, difficult conversations, they're we all struggle with it. And we have so many folks in our listening community who follow your work as well. So I'm super excited that you're bringing that out there into the world. And we'll get it all linked up in the episode notes and this week's weekly leadership guide. Kwame, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for your perspective. It was my pleasure, Dave. Thanks for having me again.
If this conversation was helpful to you, several related episodes I'd recommend. One of them is episode 237, These Coaching Questions Get Results. Michael Bungay-Stanier was my guest on that episode. Michael, the best-selling author of The Coaching Habit, the most useful book on coaching skills I've ever read, and several questions featured in that book. One of them is, and what else? The invitation for all of us to be asking that question to find out what has not been said yet in the conversation. Many other questions featured in that episode number 237. Also recommended episode 454, how to ask better questions. David Marquet was my guest on that episode, best-selling author of Turn the Ship Around and also Leadership is Language. We talked in detail in that conversation about how to ask questions differently and in ways that will actually elicit open-ended responses and get the other party talking more. A lot of times we ask questions technically, the question mark is technically at the end, but it is a leading question or we're giving direction disguised as a question. We talk in that episode on what are some ways we can use better language to actually hear what it is that we want that'll serve both parties better. And then I'd also recommend episode 529, The Way Out of Major Conflict. Amanda Ripley was my guest on that episode and a reminder to us to never humiliate anyone else in conversation. Uh, Such an important critical reminder for us as leaders, much more on how to navigate major conflict and, more importantly, how to avoid it in the first place in episode 529. All of those episodes you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website. If you have your membership set up at coachingforleaders.com, one of the things you can do is search for episodes by topic, and one of the topic areas is influence. We've had dozens and dozens of conversations over the years on how we can influence better, whether it's in a formal capacity or not. And so many of us are in situations, even in a formal leadership role, where we need to influence without authority, other stakeholders, other folks outside of the organization, vendors, customers. There's so many different kinds of relationships where even a leader in a significant position inside the organization does need to lead without authority. Influence is such an important skill for so many of us. That's one of the topic areas inside of the free membership have added tons in there for you, plus all of the other benefits of free membership, including my weekly leadership guide with links and resources from every episode. If you haven't set up your free membership, go on over to coachingforleaders.com. You'll see it right there on the main page. Set up your free membership. You'll have access to all of that. And if you're looking for perhaps a bit more, I'm inviting you also to learn about Coaching for Leaders Plus, several key benefits inside of Coaching for Leaders Plus, including topic guides. We have topic guides on specific situations that you may be wondering about. How do I do a better job at driving results for a team? How do I handle tough conversations more effectively? In the topic guides, I walk you through in detail what episodes should you listen to, in what order, what are some specific questions you should be asking, what are the key points, and then some advice from me on how to think about those experts in the context of your work. If that's interesting to you, go over to coachingforleaders.plus. That will tell you more about Topic Guides, plus all of the other benefits inside of Coaching for Leaders Plus. Next week, I'm glad to welcome Brian Feroldi to the show. He is going to join me to show us how to read an income statement, a critical skill for leaders, whether you work for a small business, a large corporation, or a nonprofit. Join me for that conversation with Brian to help us all improve our financial intelligence, and look forward to seeing you then on Monday. 